We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Okay, uh, so welcome to the first podcast for 2021. Happy New Year to all our listeners. Um, we took a brief, brief hiatus over the sort of Christmas New Year period, but we're back and we are, as always, hoping to make more regular podcasts in the coming year. Um, so to kick things off, um, given that we're still kind of in holiday mode and nobody really felt like organising a guest or anything like that, Matt and I decided to make a podcast about one of the topics that we constantly complain to each other about, uh, which is basically the death of literature, um, or at least the very marked decline in quality in uh, a lot of literature these days. Um, and I think, like, I was thinking a bit about why I wanted to talk about this, apart from the fact that it really pisses me off. And I think it's important to note at the start, maybe, that this isn't just a problem in literature. Like, I see similar things happening um, in movies and TV, just in terms of, like, I guess this, the shift from interesting, um, risk-taking, uh, not unconventional products and towards just, like, sort of samey stuff that feels written by an algorithm. Um, and because I, I guess I consume more books than movies and TV, that makes me sound like a wanker, but I guess it's a medium that's more important to me personally and um, one that I think about more. Like, that's why, you know, I particularly care about literature. But I think a lot of the things we're saying here could probably be applied um, equally to other mediums. Um, Matt, what do you reckon? Like, why did you want to do this show? Yeah, um... It, this is a topic that I think it's something that people make reference to from time to time. It's clearly something that we're not the only people here in the world thinking about this. And like not just people on the left or not even primarily people on the left. Um, the fact that we're specifically talking about books, right? The fact that if you go and you pick a, a book, a novel up off the shelf now, you will You'll generally know what you're going to get. You'll find that there's a very particular voice that everyone seems to write in. There's very particular subjects um, that everyone seems to cover. There's a real homogeneity to the literary culture that we have. And in some sense, it kind of flies under the radar, possibly just because the novel does not have the cultural cachet that it used to. It does not have the visibility. Um, in some sense, because it has to compete with television and film and video games and even comics and all these other things. Um, but also in some sense, because it's losing that competition, because it's just not that good. Um, and I always think, when was the last time a, a new novel, a novel published in the last like five years, when was the last time you heard about that if you weren't glued to the literary world. Like if you're not the kind of person who actively follows everything that happens, like every new book that comes out, there's very few things that attain this the same level of like cultural awareness that uh, a TV show or even a game or even like, I don't know, Hamilton or something can yeah. do. I was going to say that like the only, exa the only um, example I can think of is Sally Rooney. Um, I think Normal People became like a big hit. But that was because of the TV series, mostly, I think. Um, 
And, you know, it's a, it's a claim to fame of mine um, among my friends that I was across the Sally Rooney beat long before she became popular. Um, but I think, yeah, like most, most of the time it is that, right? Like um, books become TV series and then the TV series sells the book. Uh, and so that in itself gives rise to a very specific form of writing where people are, are writing um, a book that they hope to be made into a TV series, um, arguably getting everything backwards in the process. But we'll get, I think we'll get more into um, specific criticism of which I have a lot <laughs> later on. Um, and, uh, we both are writers ourselves, um, and we've written, um, well, I've, yeah, I don't know about you, Matt, but I've mostly had nonfiction published, um, but we both have written yeah, novel-length manuscripts, um, and yeah, I guess if any literary agents are listening to this, don't take any of this blistering critique as a sign that we don't want our novels to be published. Oh yeah, no, you're the exception. <laughs> If you're like listening <laughs> yeah, to this and you're a literary agent, yeah, like this is this is entirely the sour grapes podcast because we're both oh, frustrated unpublished novelists yeah. um, who haven't got the recognition that our genius deserves. Exactly, but I also think, like you said, like there are, uh, I think there are a lot of people out there who probably feel the same way as we do. Absolutely, um, because one of the one of the kind of platforms of my approach in talking about this stuff is to um, believe strongly that readers are not the problem. I think readers do have good taste in general and they're not idiots. Um, and this decline in quality of, of the cultural product of the novel, I don't think we should just immediately jump to the assumption that it's because readers are stupid. Um, I think there's a lot more going on there. Um, so I, I do want to jump into that. But I think also like it's worth noting at the start that we both read very different genres and write in very different genres. Um, and so, Matt, do you want to talk a little bit about what you mostly are interested in? And I'll talk yeah, about I'll start. So one of the things I almost just don't read anything published in the 21st century and noticing that is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this, because I feel like I should uh, be able to find stuff that I like. But um, so my favorite authors are uh, Thomas Pynchon, um, Umberto Eco, who wrote The Name of the Rose, uh, John Lee Carr, who writes spy stories, uh, Michael Chabon, uh, some of Salman Rushdie's stuff. And they're all, a lot of my, like, my favorite works by these authors are often historical fiction, because I'm obsessed with history uh, in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of detective stories, uh, adventure stories, um, like spy stories, uh, anything with a, a sword or a gun in it. And like a lot of genre fiction uh, for preference, so like Elmore Leonard, the crime novelist, is one of my favourites. Yeah. Um, and I think I come down almost on the exact opposite side of the scale um, in that I like generally like reading uh, literary fiction of the kind that's kind of usually but not always written by women and marketed to women and usually exploring, you know, sex and um, relationships uh, and... Um, you know, families and that kind of thing with a sort of intellectual slant. So um, some of my favourite authors are Helen Garner, um, Amar McBride, uh, Sally Rooney, Tessa Hadley, um, Jane Smiley, Zadie Smith. I wrote Lionel Shriver before she became a parody of herself, Curtis Sittenfeld before she started writing Hillary fanfic. Um, and I think Jonathan, Jonathan Franzen is great. That's my most cancelable opinion that I've ever uttered on the podcast. <laughs> um, but he's a really good writer in this genre. Um, and I also like some literary fiction that doesn't fit into that category, like um, two of my favourite books are The Secret History um, by Donna Tartt and Disgrace by J.M. Um But I guess in general, I'd 
say I'm more interested in kind of realist books that are set in contemporary times or around, you know, the 20th, 21st century and more sort of literary and character driven. Um, and that, you know, that makes me the market for a lot of big novels that get put out these days and a lot of mass literary fiction is, is marketed to me as this, the reader of this kind of stuff. Um, and that makes me so angry about how bad most of it is. Uh, and I think like Matt and I um, both read a, an interview with the critic uh, Lauren Euler, who's one of the few people who's actually been willing to, to say some of this stuff recently. And I think I'll put a link to that interview in the show description. But one of the things she says uh, in that interview is that the decline of, of criticism means that uh, all of these books get hyped as amazing and masterful and like the best thing ever. But what's actually on the inside bears very little relation to what's on the jacket copy. Like none of the reviews that seem to be actually describing the book you read. So you read it and you go, God, am I, is, am I insane? Because I think this is really mediocre, but everyone else apparently thinks it's a, it's masterful. It kind of feels like being gaslit. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I want to talk more about why that is, but that's the kind of overall sense that I take to reading these days. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's really funny how gendered our literary tastes are. Like, yes, it seems very on the nose. So. I'm like, gee, I like yeah. books for boys. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think you and, once told like, me you don't read any books without murders in them. <laughs> that's basically correct, um, yeah. <laughs> or at least, like, for preference. Um, I mean, like, uh, I've been thinking about, there's a line in one of uh, Chimamanda Adichie's novels, Mm. which uh who is a nigerian author who is someone is the kind of person that joe reads more than the kind of person that i reads but um i did enjoy her books anyway mm. um and she's just gets in an argument with her boyfriend about he just reads books about objects and <laughs> things and like yeah. books that are just lists of brand names and like <laughs> material goods that exist in the world and he's trying to get her to read these books because he thinks they're more literary than the books she reads and she's just like uh and tells him to fuck off yeah <laughs> um yeah and i do think like gendered reading habits are very interesting and like mm. i don't want to say that boys like these kind of books and girls like those kind of books because i think that's not true certainly not in any like objective sense um but clearly our tastes Clearly, our reading tastes, like a lot about our personalities, are formed by our experience of gender. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with um, so-called lighter subject materials um, that explore personal relationships and so forth. Um, absolutely not. But I do think where I do have a problem with it is with that line of um, argument that says, well, you know, if you say that romance novels, for instance, aren't this, of the same literary value as like James Joyce, then really you're being very sexist. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, that's obviously horseshit for many reasons. Um, and I, I do want to get into more of that, that, yeah, that argument that seems to equate to that sort of postmodern argument that says, well, it really, there's no such thing as quality. Like all written things have the same quality. And, it, and even if, you know, even if one thing is more easy or enjoyable to read than another, then that makes it better. Um, and I think that's that's very wrong, uh, yeah. and I want to talk about why. But maybe um, as a first step, I can <laughs> kind of go over some of my main bugbears um, in, in Litvik these days. Please do. Uh, and I think, you, did you end up skimming that terrible book that I sent you? I read a little bit of it. I didn't get through the yeah. whole thing, but I got enough of a sense oh. of what it was about and how it was written. 
yeah, so I recently tried to read a, a bad novel, um, and actually, mostly I'd finish things just because I'm a completionist, but I couldn't actually finish this, it was too bad, and it had been described as amazing. Um, so I sent it to Matt to sort of give him a sense of the sort of thing that I'll be talking about, um, but I'm not going to go too deep into that specific book, This is these are all very general problems. So I think what I want to start off with is this, um, what I've what I kind of call the death of show don't tell and there's if you've ever tried to write fiction or research how, how to write fiction this is kind of the first rule that you learn is that you don't tell the reader uh, what's going on or what a character is like or, or what their story is you show them um, as the book progresses you give them little um, clues I guess to figure it out for themselves so I think there's a famous quote by um, I think it's Chekhov don't don't quote me on that but he says something like don't tell me the window is broken, show me the moonlight glinting off the glass or something like that. So that's that kind of thing. And that seems to me to be almost completely out of fashion uh, in, in contemporary literary writing. Like the example that I um, thought of is like it was a big breakthrough moment for me in my own fiction writing when I realised um, that in order to introduce a character to the reader, um, I'd sort of been relying on this, the crutch of having a, an early scene where like she walks down the street just sort of reflecting on her life so far and, you know, thinking about her upbringing and, and because it's an internal um, narration style that the reader gets to see all that and is thus brought up to speed. Um, and it was a big breakthrough moment when I realised that that was stupid and I didn't have to do that and that a much more natural way of doing it would be to have some of those details kind of come up naturally in conversation with other characters or maybe we you know, she at one point goes back to see her family and we learn about them that way, um, that, you know, that's much more organic and pleasurable for the reader than just getting a big info dump. Um, but I was recently reading the first few chapters of a, a novel um, that was very hyped, um, and it's called Perfect Tunes by Emily Gold, and it literally had one of these sequences, like early on where the, the protagonist walks down the street and thinks about her life, and I was like, what the fuck? This is like one of the most basic things that you can do. Um, it's just like not to do that shit. Um, but I think it, it kind of all points to this this trend where the reader is assumed um, to be unable to work it out by themselves or or there's kind of an anxiety about the reader not getting it. So, it, you know, it, like I said, it actually makes reading much less pleasurable um, to have that you kind of read this info dump instead of being part of the story. Um, but it's, it's the most efficient way to make sure the reader gets it, whatever you're trying to say, and so writers just do that. Um, similarly, like I was reading another novel, uh, that was centered on two friends and one of whom was kind of in love with the other one secretly. And I thought like, this is a great opportunity to, um, be, to explore kind of secret and maybe, maybe unacknowledged even to yourself feelings. So you can be really subtle about it. You know, you start with a, um, with what seems like an ordinary friendship and then you start kind of sowing seeds, like clues for the reader, like really this narrator wants something more from her friend. Um, maybe she won't even admit that to herself. So the reader kind of works out what's going on before she even does. Um, but no, like <laughs> I think it was about page 11 of the book. Uh, the narrator just says, yeah, you know, I'd been in love with so-and-so for years and I never told her about it because I was worried she wouldn't feel the same way. <laughs> it's like, all right, that's it. Like now we know this whole tension and nuance of the central relationship of your novel is completely stripped away because, you know, because they're apparently you're afraid that the reader won't understand on their own. So you must just tell them. Um, so I think there's, yeah, there's mm. this trend towards Do you think that, being like, there's um, a point and everyone has to be, has okay. to get it. Sorry, go on. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, 
Um, do you think that applies even on the sentence level alone? Yeah. Like I find that when I'm, because when I'm writing a sentence, I will often, the, the window example, like I'll write the window was broken and then delete it and then write moonlight glinted off the broken glass of the window. Mm -hmm. Like even on the basic level of what verb you choose, how to make your prose more lively from paragraph to paragraph, that's still an important rule is like, instead of saying was say, like what it did mm. and like yeah like think more broadly about your even very specific choice of verbs mm -hmm. yeah and I did notice that about the book that you sent me to read is that it would just be like yeah such and such was this like mm. this was happening on the both on the sentence level and on the broader um narrative level yeah. like it had this problem throughout yeah and it um it used a so it had a dual narrator structure so two narrators who are both um, obviously observing each other and it I mean I think that's also again a really interesting opportunity there but um, it used that as an excuse to for each character to kind of describe the other one in this very kind of flat prose to the reader like oh so this person was earnest or whatever and you're like yeah but we could have just figured that out by watching them ourselves like by observing the character ourselves but it, no it has to be told to us um, and so I think like Part of it, I, and I want to talk more about why this is like after I get over my huge critique hill, um, but there's the assumption that, yeah, the reader's an idiot or that they're there to be entertained. Like they want to turn their brain off. They don't want to put any effort into the act of reading. Like they want to just be consuming a book in the same way you consume a TV show or a burger or whatever. Uh, and to me, like that sucks. Like that, it, it just that's entirely the opposite of what the reading experience should be. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, also that's actually not entertaining. No. Like I'm very happy to be entertained in a very blunt and stupid way by any, uh, you know, any book or any work of fiction. However, I don't find it entertaining to just be like I told that stuff. I actually do want to be engaged with the material in some way. Um, and like, because when you say like she was earnest as opposed to describing what she did, um, part of the reason that's wrong is that nobody is just earnest. Like you don't, you're not describing like the specific character. You're not giving a sense of this person's particular energy. You're losing out of uh, the more uh, abstract nature of like what you're trying to convey. So if you're trying to convey a particular person or a particular place or the aura of a particular thing. Yeah. Um, you don't just like list adjectives because adjectives just like put it in a box and just say like it was like yes. this other thing and like you actually show the thing in motion. Um, and you, which yeah, leads you me, show what the thing Which does. leads me to my second point actually that I really, the other thing that bugs me so much is, yeah, this lack of nuance in characters. Um, in books these days, a lot of, the, a lot of characters just seem to be painted as either like good and you know good has a certain set of characteristics or bad and bad has a certain set of characteristics um and and also human relationships are either you know good healthy um ultimately you know have challenges but ultimately uplifting or or loving or whatever or they're bad they're destructive exploitative manipulative but you know most of our closest relationships are both really and that's where what makes them interesting um and that's the that's the entire point. Like neither of them cancel each other out. Both are equally true. Uh, 
And I've just included a, a quote from Helen Garner here, who is, um, as I said at the top of the show, one of my favourite writers. And um, she actually has written a fair bit of nonfiction as well. And this is a quote from uh, The House of Grief, one of her nonfiction books. And so she writes about uh, this sentimental fantasy of love as a condition of simple benevolence, a tranquil sunlit region in, in which we are safe from our indestructive urges. Uh, and that really seems to be what most literary fiction writers are going for these days. Like love equals good, equals good feelings, equals healthy dynamics or whatever. And there's no dark side to that. Um, and so what we kind of, yeah, then end up with is a cast of heroes and a cast of villains. Uh, and I, you know, even then I'm not like, that can be convincingly done. Like there are very convincing villains in, in fiction, but what I really, um, what really bothers me about that is it generally just follows like the world's most boring two-dimensional formulas about power relations. Like how do we, like relationships between women, so friendships or um, same-sex relationships or relationships between mothers and daughters, those are good. Like those are generally seem, seem to be um, restorative or healthy um, or yeah, they have a fundamental goodness to them. Um, relationships between men and women are suspect um, and the men is, are usually kind of seen as <laughs> suspicious parties. And then relationships between younger women and older men are just exploitative. Um, and, you know, you can read that it's almost coded. Like as soon as you come across an age gap relationship in uh, fiction, you just know, okay, this, this guy's a bad guy. Like, whereas I don't think real life is like that. Like life doesn't, and relationships don't happen according to these handy woke formulas, but no one seems willing to, to admit that. Well, I reckon when you, one of the issues is that when you talk about this, no one's out there saying, oh, actually, I think that fiction should be two-dimensional. Like, people always deny that this is happening and deny that they're doing this and say, no, no. Like, of course, everyone's in favor of complex relationships <laughs> and everyone uh, understands on principle that human beings are not just good or evil. And so you'll see, I think books like this lauded as showing the complexity of a situation and you'll read interviews with authors where they say oh i like tried to really get at the fact that these people aren't just good or bad but then that's not what will actually be in yeah, the book no that's actually exactly right um that's yeah one of the things that makes me feel a little crazy <laughs> uh and yeah, that's, yeah, yeah yeah i um quoting lauren euler again the critic i mentioned before this is, I think, what she calls asserting nuance with the opposite of nuance. So you take what is considered to be an, a nuanced issue or an issue that contains a lot of, of nuance, um, but then you do the most boring execution possible. Um, and so what I see that as is, is like um, is asserting nuance via the sort of putting up a, a flag that says, look, this is nuance because I'm writing about this topic, but then you write about it in like the least nuanced way possible. Um, I, like just to give an example, um, one of the books last year that came out, that was like a, a really big book, um, very, very hyped was called, uh, My Dark Vanessa, which I have a whole section on cause it drives me absolutely insane. <laughs> My Dark Vanessa. <laughs> so it's, I mean, to me, that's, it comes from a poem, I think by Nabokov, uh, the title, but, um, it, it does okay. read like fan fiction. I don't know why it just sets off fan fiction <laughs> alarms in my brain. And the whole book reads like like young adult um, fiction. But anyway, um, yeah, the, the reason I wanted to talk about that was that I think the premise of that book, if you haven't heard of it, is, is really interesting. Um, and it follows a, a girl, um, 
uh, about 15 when the book starts or, um, and she has a sexual relationship with her English teacher and it carries on till she's about 21. And then it kind of flashes back and forth between that time period and then um, a period in the future when she's about 28. And through um, a variety of circumstances, she basically has to grapple with her memory of that relationship. Like she thought at the time that they were in love and she still remembers it as love, but the rest of the world says this is, this is child abuse. And she kind of, it's, it's very hard for her to grapple with that. Um, and I think that's super interesting, like, because, you know, I think just to put my own opinion out there, I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive, like abusive relationships can contain aspects of love. Like, as I said before, I don't think love is just this wonderful benevolence. Um, anyway, but instead of diving into some of that interesting, like meaty psychosexual material, just get this fucking boring pedophile story. That's like just the most paint by numbers thing you've ever seen. Like the, the, the teacher in the book, just like he behaves as though someone had looked up a list of like typical pedophile behaviors online and then just slotted them into the character. Like everything. He, I mean, I was just rolling my eyes the whole way through, but this book is, is considered to be very nuanced because I don't know, I guess because it explores an issue that people can recognize as containing nuance, even though it doesn't do so in a way that is true to any of that. Yeah. That's a tricky thing when like, yeah, nuance just becomes something that you market your book as containing. Um, and people know that nuanced means good. There's no way to objectively prove that something does or does not contain nuance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's like, true. It's hard to, even, even my attempts to explain to this, I know I'm not really getting it across, but hopefully, I'm hoping yeah, yeah. most of the people listening to this kind of have their own experiences and will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, and like, in, in a way, maybe it's almost that we need to stop asking people to have more nuance because that clearly doesn't result <laughs> in actual nuanced whatever. Like, I, I've, I'm trying to remember, and I don't remember what it's called, but there's an old, like, uh, I think a literary criticism essay I remember reading, which was just, like, against nuance. I was like, okay, look, the obsession with nuance in these fields uh, is leading to just pages and pages of endless, like uh stretching things out and like wanking over things that don't really matter and the thing is just like writing at length about something isn't nuanced saying the same thing over and over again like you can write a, a hundred page novel that's less nuanced nuanced than just like a four-line poem um because the hundred page novel will have one idea in it and the four-line poem will have like uh, thousands of ideas in it um but it also seems that maybe like nuance has come to stand in for a whole set of things and qualities that just aren't what we mean when we say nuance at all. So maybe we need to just get rid of that word. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think like I think um, just trying to think, trying to formulate what my actual thought on this is. But yeah, through I mean because we now have so much more discussion in the sort of what might be termed the public sphere. And I'm, by that, I mostly mean like online. Um, there's so much more discussion of, um, I don't know, ideas in a way, like what the, the correct, you know, your personal worth has really come to be associated very much so with the ideas that you hold. Um, at least, you know, that's, seems to be the, the current that a lot of online discourse is drifting towards or, or has been drifting towards for a while. I don't believe that's actually the case. 
Um, but and and so and that's reflected in literature then, where like you know you must uh, have certain ideas in your text, um, and they have to be the correct ones, uh, and that makes it good. Um, and so, but uh, you know, I I don't think that's the case. Um, I think it's often the result is very artificial. Uh, like one of my other chief pet peeves is that every novel <laughs> that I read these days, um, and you know, a lot of them are about middle class white people and their personal problems. Like <laughs> that's fine. Like a lot of literature is about that, but there always has to be a, a moment in the text where there's like a little check your privilege moment where one of the characters just starts talking about the Combahee River Collective and in the invention of intersectionality. Like, I wish I was exaggerating that, but it's, yeah, I recently read a novel that had a little scene like that. And um, it's like, yeah, it's just like saying, oh, I know, I know about this. Like, you, you can give me a pass because I know about this idea and I'm, you know, sympathetic, even though my novel has nothing really to do with it. Um, I've, you know, absorbed this, this, this thing from the, the discourse um and i'm the i'm the right kind of person and really what it is is a, a sublimation of aesthetic qualities to ethical qualities like things that are good must be th things that are right must be good and the other way around yeah and that is definitely um like a major theme of what we're saying here is that yeah the sublimation of aesthetic qualities to ethical qualities as if these were synonymous we're far from the first people to point this out and say look no, that's wrong. Like, there's plenty of conservative writers who I think are brilliant, and there's plenty of leftist writers who I think are shit. Um, these are just different categories, and they don't have a lot to do with each other. And yeah, like, I don't think that needs to be explicitly said, though, that the quality of a work is not related to whether the work advocates for good or bad political ideas, because if that's not explicitly said, people seem to constantly backslide into assuming that it does because it's much easier and it gives you something that you can measure and something that you can talk about that doesn't require you to think too yeah. hard. No, exactly. And that's how you get, like I, I wrote in the notes here, um, characters who talk, who, who recite chunks of dialogue that sound like first year sociology essays. And for some reason, this is really prevalent among I would say like Gen X and older writers who are trying to write young people. Like they're like, oh, well, young people today are all very woke. So why don't I just like copy and paste a Tumblr um, post into like my dialogue? And it's just so unrealistic. Like 20 year olds do not talk like that. Um, and all it adds is that, yeah, this, this kind of um, flagging that you are aware of X hot button issue. Yeah. Like I've been thinking about this in my own writing. Cause I, um, I just wrote a short story um, about, it's about Brexit. It's about um, a journalist from London going back to see her family in a small town, a small fishing town in Cornwall. Um, and I was thinking like a lot of the conversations that people in real life do have these days are about political ideas. So it, it would almost be weird to me to just have people talking about other stuff, I would think, well, this stuff does come up. You can have political arguments in fiction because it is a component of people's lives. Um, but also everyone's kind of sick of them and no one wants to read just the same argument um, over and over. And certainly no one wants to pretend that that's like, like no one should pretend that that's an interesting, uh, or like that that's automatically interesting. Like I think a lot of 
especially a lot of authors now, I think they're just on Twitter all the time. They're just glued to politics like everyone else. They just fix it on Trump or whatever. And there's the constant impulse to just work that into everything. Like I definitely noticed, um, I've forgotten the name of that, um, that book that you sent me. Oh, but... um, it's called Friends and Strangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like I noticed um, at one point, the narrator's being like, such and such had gotten into socialism recently <laughs> and he really cared all about the the working class or whatever. And it's like, I don't know, like, okay, that came across your Twitter feed. It came across everyone else's Twitter feed as well. Like, and maybe slightly a, a side note, but one of the things I've really noticed about modern literature is they think that observing the existence of especially social media gets them some gets them points of some kind. Like, they love to just be like, oh, he posted the thing on Facebook. And so everyone in the world fucking knows about Facebook. Like, oh, I'm in a regular book, but I'm acknowledging that someone was on Twitter. Like, and I think that nobody has yet worked out in literature, in like long form prose, how to talk about social media in a remotely interesting way, or like how to address any really any aspect of the whole space of online culture um how to get at it in prose in a way that's not a uh, cliched and stupid so they end up just end up uh observing the existence of things that we all know exists as a sort of almost like a, a badge of belonging to the like liberal in-group where you're supposed to just look at it and just clap your hands like a seal and go i know about that and like I mean, I, I think the internet to some degree creates a sense in people of you, like you feel like you're in the world's biggest in group and you feel like knowing about Twitter, um, like you have the illusion that you're one of about 15 people who know about Twitter. <laughs> yes, very true. Um, but I want to go back to something you said before yeah. about how to, uh, how to write political conversations, which is something yeah. I've grappled with a lot too, because when I first started writing fiction, I wanted to write something that broadly reflected the kind of lives that myself and my friends lead um, and the kind of season of life that we're in, I suppose. Um, and we do have a lot of political conversations, obviously, like we have a podcast. <laughs> um, and I never found, eventually I kind of gave up on that idea because I never found a, a good way to um, do political conversation in literary fiction dialogue. Like I think because you need, because any group of people talking about politics are doing so from a particular standpoint, um, from our standpoint, you know, it's, for most of us being involved with the Greens for a number of years now in this particular South Brisbane locality and all of that, like you really need to write the whole novel about that before you can contextualise the character's conversation about it so that it would make sense to the reader or feel in any way like, like the way it does to us when we're having those conversations. Um, and so I think like that is the challenge. That's what you really sort of need to do to write good political dialogue. Um, but yeah, there's, but that, that doesn't get done. But at the same time, there's this kind of growing consciousness that like, oh, politics is a thing, so I better put it in my book. And for most writers, I would say they probably don't really have these kinds of conversations with their friends or with their peers or with each other. Um, I don't know. I'm generalizing here, but that's my suspicion. Um, and so what ends up happening is like, yeah, just copy and paste the, the latest cursed um, discussion that's on Twitter, which is in no way um, relevant to, you know, the lives yeah. of most people in the world. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, a couple of things. First, one of the things that I'm 
have become obsessed with in my own writing is the way people have now of talking past each other. And so I write a lot of conversations that are two people trying to get an idea across, but they're just kind of sliding past each other. They're not really responding because they almost don't know how to respond. That's why um, like the topic of Brexit interested me because I remember being in Europe and having an English guy come up to me and start talking to me about um, how good Brexit was going to be and just having no comprehension of how to respond because I didn't know what world he was in. And that comes up in um, like door knocking and voter conversations too, as sometimes people say, people start talking at you um, from especially like the conspiracy theory, um, like right wing sort of point of view where it's clear that they've just been exposed to stuff and they live in a world that's so different from your world. That's a real struggle to find any common ground at all. And so trying to capture this in um, like in prose and in a in dialogue is really interesting to me. I also think that like liberals, because like most authors are liberals, right? And liberals don't really have a conception of themselves as liberals. They don't think of themselves as representing a specific political ideology in a world of other political ideologies that are all like balanced against each other. They have certainly a very limited understanding of what socialism is. And that doesn't have to be like, uh, I, I guess I'm thinking about if you read novels from like the 20s and 30s, right? Um, they, you know, the author might not be a fan of socialism. They might hate socialism, but they know what it is and they know what a socialist is like. And so they're very capable of writing a socialist character as a fully realized character. And that, um, and like maybe now it'd be less socialism because there's still not that many socialists, but like the liberal writers certainly find it very hard to write a conservative character who's not a caricature. Um, I guess I've been reading books by uh, John Butchen, who's a spy novelist from about World War One, and he's um, not just a conservative, but a conservative member of parliament. Uh, and he like has a book about a conservative member of parliament, like teaming up with a, a Labour MP to fight an anarchist conspiracy. And but like he and he writes like socialists and like Labour MPs, but like he thinks that they're wrong, but he writes them as people. And he's, he's like he writes about politics, but he has a clear sense of what of politics as a bunch of different factions all competing against each other and a bunch of different people and as of these people all having a role to play in society. Whereas I think liberal writers now, they don't think in those terms. They tend to think, well, really, everyone should just be liberals. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Like there, there is, um, I mean, I think we've probably talked about this on the show before, but there's certainly a current in, in liberal thought uh, and even in some, some left-wing circles that trying to understand the conservative brain or trying to view conservatives as people who have motivations for their actions, which may not be entirely evil, but maybe, you know, understandable even by us from the opposite side of the spectrum, um, that that is, you know, tantamount to, um, I don't know, like uh, sympathizing with them or, or, or thinking that their views are acceptable or that, you know, they're, they're not bad people or whatever. Um, yeah. And, and that's incredibly prevalent in political discourse and certainly in fiction. You're right, actually. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I haven't actually thought about that before, but I can't. I'm just like 
yeah, going back in my mind to think whether I've ever I've read a novel with a conservative character in it recently, and I don't think I have. <laughs> well, they try to do it sometimes, um, but I think even when they try to do it, they really struggle because um, they don't know any conservatives and they've never really spoken to anyone to them. And like, I don't know that many conservatives either. I'm not like um, saying that I'm brilliant at it necessarily. And like, I'm like, I do think that you will, you know, like, again, this is like the nuance thing where if you like really like ask them about it, they'd say, uh, no, no, of course I understand that like no one's truly evil, but then it doesn't actually show up in the fiction. Mm. Yeah. And I think like it's related to the broader problem of um, authors only wanting to write um, either author in self-insert characters, like just avatars mm. for the author. Like, <laughs> I'm really fucking sick of reading novels that have writers as the protagonist. Like, no more of those, mm. please. Um, either that, which is related to the other phenomenon I want to talk about, which is only writing good or likable characters. Like, I spend way too much time on, on a cursed site called Goodreads, um, where, <laughs> where uh, people submit their own, like, short reviews of, of uh, books, published books. And, um, I go there to read, like if I read a novel I hate, I'll go there and like read only the one and two star reviews so I can feel validated. Um, and if I read a novel I love, I also just like to go and see like what other people thought about it and whether it's um, getting the recognition it deserved. So anyway, I spend way too much time on that website. And one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of reviewers there really just seem to want to read books with likable characters. like. A very common critique is, well, I couldn't get into this book. I didn't like any of the characters. <laughs> They're all selfish or um, they were, yeah, selfish for some reason is like probably the most common complaint. Um, so I want to talk about like why this is. Like where did we get to this idea that it's necessary to like the protagonist of a book? Um, it's, I think it might have something to do with this other idea that it's necessary to identify with them. Like you have to be able to, if not identify with, then at least relate to the narrator you want to slip into their skin which is one way of reading and I, that's you know that can be very pleasurable but i don't think that is what makes literature mm. yeah like um to me that's such an alien experience right because the bigger a piece of shit the protagonist of a book is <laughs> the better the book is yes absolutely just... <laughs> i want more books about assholes like everyone's an asshole yes we asshole like don't like, try to paint this person is like good because i don't feel myself to be like that good of a person i you know i, I think of myself as a flawed human being and i want to yeah. see that experience reflected like yeah anyway <laughs> yeah like one of my favorite books is uh the prague cemetery by umberto eco which is about the biggest piece of shit alive it's about um it's about anti-semitism and it's about um a, a fictional character who's a forger who in the book forges the protocols of the elders of zion yeah. and like is uh, has all these adventures in 19th century europe and does all this just deeply malevolent shit um and it's great because he's a like a great character um like the whole point of the character he's he's like a, just a vile self-serving human being and like that's what's good about the book yeah yeah um no i totally agree like i mentioned before one of my favorite novels is disgrace um by james katia mm. i don't have you read that i have a long time ago mm. i don't remember i so, read it in like uh university right um so to me this is like one of the best books published in the 20th century um and it follows a uh white south african male um 50 something 
who uh, he's fired from his job basically and he's there's a big scandal because he fucks a student. So like, and he, he does do some things that are not very good in the book. Um, like his behavior towards other people um, is pretty bad in places. But Katia copped a lot of shit for this book, um, a lot. Uh, even It did win a very big prize, but there's also unsurprisingly like a lot of critiques of it. But I think it maybe speaks to this other related phenomenon where it's assumed that if an author writes a character or especially a protagonist doing certain things, that means they endorse those actions. Like, But to me, that loses sight of what, if, what is one of the main points of fiction, which is that things can stand for, for things bigger than themselves. Like things can be symbolic. Uh, it, we don't have to judge the individual moral action of every single thing that occurs in fiction because maybe that's not even the author's point. Yeah, it's very Victorian. Mm. Like we've come to this... We've somehow found our way back by a roundabout route to this Victorian idea of literature that it's supposed to, it's for the moral edification of the masses. And that like, like if you read a Victorian book, they're incredibly boring and insufferable (laughs) because of that exact reason is that the characters can never have more than a a very, very mild personal flaw. Um, And like, I don't know how we found our way back to this. (laughs) Yeah, well, it is. I mean, it's very much the case. Like, I think this is this is um, getting towards maybe what maybe the last thing we want to talk about before we we talk more about the broader structural reasons for this decline. But um, we, I think, we both notice something called the, the fanfictionification yeah. of literary yes. books, like the where everything of feels literature. like fanfiction. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And one of the one of the um, Markers of that, I would say, is is characters who are very good, like or, or you know, apart from the villains, which are preset, everyone knows who the villains are in all of these universes. Um, these characters are, yeah, like or protagonists anyway, have specific personal flaws, but mostly they are good people doing good things, and it's a very set moral universe. Yeah, like fan fiction is interesting, and there's a lot to say about it. Um, and I, I do think that people don't quite realise how much influence that these fanfiction communities on Tumblr and LiveJournal, how much their modes of of communication have really bled over into our online left discourse. And yeah, a lot of art and literature and a lot of TV, like TV shows now especially are increasingly written by people who got their start either by actually doing fanfiction or just like... uh, have always been immersed in that world um and it's not something that's like it's not something that's necessarily entirely bad or at least like it's a a distinct uh literary culture with its own things that it does and that's never going to be something that's just good or bad but there are definitely particular aspects of fan fiction culture um that are like you can that you can really see in all of these uh, fields and that um, like have to be criticized because they have a very strong tendency to become really fucked up mm. and really damaging to what you're trying to write. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think um, there was a Twitter thread about this only yesterday, yeah. I think. So we're um, actually in tune with the zeitgeist for a change. Um, but yeah. so somebody put on Twitter, basically like, I don't know why people think fan fiction is like something to aspire to. Like it's, it's not, generally not very good and um, people should not be trying to write in the style of fan fiction. 
and got completely um, completely ratioed by tons of people who were like, no, it's actually good. Um, it's, you know, uh, anything that gets people writing is good, writing and reading is good, uh, and also who you basically the argument we've talked about before, which is um, there is no such thing as standards, like one written thing is as good as the next and who are you to judge. Uh, and I think like to me the, the most convincing of those counter arguments was like, well, you think fan fiction is, is of a worse quality than literary fiction because you only get to read this, you get to read the slush pile basically in fan fiction. Like you get to read everyone's attempts, whereas in literary fiction you only get to read like what has been determined to be the best, even though as we've been talking about for almost an hour now, uh, we would disagree with that. Uh, but I think like the, the lack of criticism is a real problem in, in fan fiction. Like, um, and, and this is something that Lauren Euler has written about too. Like the fact that, uh, in, in regular, like literary criticism these days of published books, like nobody wants to say anything bad. Um, and that's a real fucking problem. And that, that is, um, if anything, like that's a problem that exists in fan fiction too and is really amplified um, in that like no actual criticism is, is really welcome. And I see that bleeding over very much into published book world. Yeah, one of the things, I found the, um, the replies to that tweet really interesting. Um, there are a lot of people very angry, uh, a lot of people trying to disguise the fact that they were really angry at the standard like, I'm not mad. This is embarrassing yeah, yeah, for you, yeah. actually. Kind of. I replies. love the ones that were like, um, um, "This is a really uh, bad take, and you should really just reconsider, like having a different take." It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. why? This is my opinion. I'm allowed to have it. <laughs> yeah, and it's very like, yeah, you got that response out of a book. We've seen that one, but also, um, this is like a small detail, but uh, the one that stuck with me was someone saying, like, "Well, no, fan fiction's good." Like, I challenge you, like, read this specific fan fiction, I read that too. and they linked it. Yes. Yeah. And like, did you did you actually like read the piece? I skimmed like, it. Like, I clicked through, but then didn't find it that interesting. But it was someone whose immediate response was to say, "No, no, no!" Like, I challenge you, like, read this specific story on Archive of Our Own, the fan fiction website, and like, tell me that it's not as good as anything in like in the you know any work of literature. And I went and read the story, and it was like passable. Um, it was fine. It was, I thought, fairly well written. Yeah, it, it was, was a story about like. Good. Um, yeah. I could see why, like, it was readable, like, it didn't, it wasn't painful mm. to read, but it didn't, like, grab no. me on to make me read more. But the thing I took away from that, and the thing I really have kind of noticed about this, is that the people who like fan fiction really fucking oh, like it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've, they if love any it. Fan, fiction listen, fan fiction fans listening to this, I'm sorry, <laughs> like, we've lost them already, but yeah. No, there, it is definitely, a, it's a lifestyle almost. Like, that's what I noticed, like, about that woman, was she liked this story so much that she thought, oh, Liv, you just read this, you'll feel the same way about it that I do, and it'll change your life in the way that uh, it changed my life. And that, like, um, perhaps because it's so designed to, like, fulfill really specific emotional needs on the part of the people who read it, and, like, because there is something about fan fiction, like, and obviously there's a very, like, close relationship between fan fiction and sex. A lot of it's just about yeah. sex. But, like, a lot of it's, you know, even if it's not, it's often about relationships. Um, <laughs> What's wrong with that, Matt? <laughs> no, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. Like, it, I think it relates to, it's that, um, it, it like, people choose to write fan fiction about the things that they write fan fiction about because it touches a particular emotional nerve. And because something in this work of fiction, like, speaks to 
uh, something in them, which most like very commonly is uh, like a, a you know a sexual thing, but like really more like a romantic impulse, which is like oh like I want to feel that way. Of course, there's well there's a lot here of just being attracted to fictional characters, mm-hmm. which is where it starts. Also, to get weird. nothing like I mean I think a lot of um... A lot of people have had that experience and yeah, definitely, I think yeah, especially yeah. for teens I'm completely yeah. fine with it like teens do what you yeah. want read YA read fan fiction write fan fiction you're just horny and you have no taste and it's totally fine but yeah, yeah, yeah. I do have a problem with adults doing it because I feel like the whole point of adulthood is you're kind of supposed to move past those adolescent urges <laughs> mm. but I think that's why there is not this like why there isn't a culture of criticism as much and why like if you write, you know, if you write fan fiction, you get a lot of comments that just tell you like this is the best thing I've ever read, um, and like this was life changing, and they're like mash the keyboard and like do stuff like that. Um, I mean, if it, even if it's not actually that good, and like it's because you have like you've kind of made literature into this vehicle for like pressing these nerves, and yeah, like, um, and in some sense that's like that's certainly interesting, like. I don't want to have like a moral panic about that either, um, but I do think it can uh, become like, a, well, what it can become eventually is you start forming like a parasocial relationship uh, with a fictional character, and that's when you get into like the real like the deep realm of like real fan fiction weirdos, where they like think that something is real, like they find i don't know i'm trying to remember what people write fan fiction about um the guy the supernatural the tv show supernatural or like um doctor who uh was a big one it's also this is it's also quite like temporary limited like there are a few of these shows that really came around like uh, the early 10s like um doctor who supernatural sherlock that um all had this effect on people and so like yeah um people come away, like, they build this relationship with these shows, and, yeah, like, and because, our, like, the society we live in is so alienating, and because people really struggle to, like, find fulfillment in their own lives, um, they instead find fulfillment in these works of fiction, and they get really into fandom, and they start being like, no, what's actually meaningful is, like, these characters. Yeah, and it's, um, um yeah. that that you wrote in the notes, um, the idea it's supposed to be a safe space from the world, a place where only good feelings are allowed. And like, that was a big, um, that's a big thing that you, a a big thing you encounter whenever you try to critique anything really, which is like, let people enjoy things. Uh, And it's kind of like, okay, but like, why? Like, if, you know, if, if this thing is out in the world, then I'm allowed to critique it. Like, I can that's part of engaging with it seriously like what makes you think that as an adult you have any right to a space where only good feelings are allowed like that is definitely not adult life um Um, yeah 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 um there's a um another thing that i've been like fascinated me recently there's a a genre of manga that has emerged in recent years uh, called an isekai which the premise of an isekai is that the protagonist is like an, an ordinary everyman with like a shit job or no job. Um, and then he gets hit by a truck and dies and wakes up in a video game universe and then goes on adventures, <laughs> which has become like very popular in Japan. And like, I remember finding out about this and being like, oh, like this seems very literal, like in terms of escapist fiction, like 
this is very directly expressing like a, a suicidal impulse mm. and I think that's very creepy mm. and it seems like the logical next step from like fan fiction stuff um but anyway yeah so like yeah the other thing that um we need to talk about here because like obviously all of this like uh, stylistic stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum is how the literature industry actually works um and so like what we've got like basically like yeah we've got these uh huge publishing houses which are increasingly just merging i think there was a a massive uh, merger in the states between like uh simon and schuster and another one which means that like instead of being five uh publishing houses that publish every book in the country there's like four now um and so we've got those I and mean, we've got amazon which completely dominates um like book selling uh and is increasingly squeezing out like uh smaller bookstores and like forcing chains to close down and things like that um so i've got a situation is like this massive monopoly um and then what we've, we've also i think got is the what i think of as the creative writing grift which is the industry of not publishing, but of actually teaching creative writing and of selling workshops and of like hosting events and like uh, convinced like selling editing for people's unpublished manuscripts and all of these things that the product they're selling is ostensibly like how to be a better creative writer, but really what's going on is that there are a lot of people out there in the world who think that writing is their escape from like their bullshit daily lives yeah for sure there's a, a lot of people out there now um with unpublished manuscripts i think like probably a lot more than they used to be although i don't know but you know i think this is related to the um the massive rise in people going to university um there's a lot more people with literature degrees now um it's related to uh, people getting told a lot more when they were younger that like just really it's like follow your dreams culture. Yeah, yeah, um, and the sort and the idea that you know middle class children growing up today have the inalienable yeah. right to be special in some way, and for yeah, a lot yeah. of people, like the idea of a creative career is their shortcut to being special. Yeah, God, um, I sound like such and, a bitter old boomer on this podcast. <laughs> well, it's like I don't know, I mean, you know, that's like. I think that is an accurate description. It's not like the personal where we would differ with um the bitter old reactionary boomer is that it's not any like the personal failing of any no. one person. No, no, no. And you know, like yeah. this is my we're describing moral, ourselves yeah. too. Both of us have yeah, published yeah. novels. And yeah. I was just saying to to you, Matt, before we started recording that I had um got a, a manuscript assessment for my for my manuscript, which you know, that's part of the creative writing grift. It costs me um, uh, an amount of money I don't even want to disclose. I'm actually embarrassed over how much I spent on it. But I did it because um, the other option, well, because I had sent it to friends who all said they loved it, but I thought they were all lying. And the other option is to join, like, some kind of writer's group, and I can't take criticism from people I know personally um, at all. Uh, and so I was like, I'll just pay X amount of money to outsource this task to someone who doesn't know me and who I don't know. And this is the most efficient way of getting like a list of things that I can improve. Um, uh, but yeah, it was fucking expensive. And mm. uh, there's like, and even throughout the process, I felt like I'm being upsold to like, uh, now I've got the assessment. I can, I have the option of um, meeting with my assessor via Skype for like a discussion of next steps, uh, which is going to be even more money. And then like, you know, then there's even programs where you can pay for someone to be your mentor. Like it is a real grift. Like if you've never 
been involved in the world of creative writing, I think like I certainly wasn't aware of any of this before I started dipping my toe into fiction writing. I just sort of thought, oh, well, if you if you're any good, you write a, a novel and you send it off to the publisher and then they'll publish it. <laughs> Yeah, that is a very um, that is what I thought as well when I started writing. That is a very dangerous and incorrect assumption. Just mm -hmm. yeah, like it really isn't visible to you until you like. I did this, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago. Now, I started really being like, well, I've got the novel. How do I get it published? I've got to start making contacts with people and going to events and like figuring out how this world works. Um, like and yeah, I went to like I went to an event at the Brisbane Writers Centre, which was free. Um, and talked to some people there and met a lot of people who also had uh, unpublished manuscripts on manuscripts they were working on and then looked at their catalogue of things that they were selling you and we're like gee that's like i don't know in the hundreds of dollars for like a half hour lecture from some person yeah um and there's uh, the thing is so the people who are making money off this uh, I think in a lot of cases are people who have published novels, but the novels haven't sold. Mm, so true. <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah, so there's a lot of, or at least like a fair few people out there um, who, yeah, they've published lit fic novels. No one buys these. No one buys the fucking things. They're not popular. Um, so like, and like they endlessly like complain about the fact that no one's buying their novels in their press, but like no one's buying them because they're not good. <laughs> Well, um, I think, like, good. that's not necessarily true. Like, there are a lot of, under, probably a lot of underappreciated gems out there. That is As true, you yes. said, and yeah. off air, like, Herman Melville never made a dollar off um, Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, but, but... And I came across some people who I thought were very good who, like, also hadn't sold books. Totally. So, yeah. um, and, but, like, literary fiction itself is not really a very silly, booky genre. Like, that's yeah. commercial fiction. That's sort of crime and, and romance, um, which, which in itself is an... In, poses an interesting question, which is like, why, um, why is there all this fuss being made? Or why is there this, this reform in a way of a genre that wasn't making money to start with? Like, <laughs> is it, is it that they want, you know, that editors want literary fiction to be more commercial? So it sells more? Like, is it that simple? Cause I mean, um, surely if like people who read commercial fiction, just like they buy commercial fiction, like you're not gonna, I don't know, like, to me, literary fiction is, is its own thing. Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I guess in some sense, it's editors and like the people who are actually making these decisions who work for the publishing companies, that's just kind of a black box to me. Like, I have yeah, no idea no, totally. what that's like. And I would probably be horrified if I ever found out. Um, and I do think, like, certainly when you try to get something published, the experience of dealing with that bot, that black box, and trying to guess how it works is pretty it stressful. It really is. It is incredibly stressful. Like, there's all yeah. like, um, if anyone listening to this has ever, you know, tried to write a novel or, or, or submit it to a competition, you have to do this thing called a synopsis, which is like the absolute devil's document. It's meant to mm. be like, um, I think like 800 words, six, five to 800 words, just summing up your entire novel, and um, it's so fucking hard, and it, it's it's impossible to do, and like. Just doing it, like I, try, I was trying to do it last year um, and I was like, I just don't know what this is supposed to look like. And for someone who's a complete outsider and an amateur to publishing, like there is, it's, it's incredibly gatekept. <laughs> yeah, you really like, you constantly think, it's kind of like writing a resume and then you're constantly thinking, gee, what's the, in, like, what's the particular sentence that I have to say that this person is looking for? I don't fucking know. Like... Am I going to, like, slave over this for weeks and then, like, just 
by chance meet the right person and talk to them, and they're like, oh, no, no. Like, no, unless you do it this way, they don't even look at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very, um, yeah, it's certainly not a very democratic system. No. Um, but it is, yeah, like, so it, there is this whole world of um, the, the black box of uh, the publishing houses, which I think everyone lives in fear of. Um, and then, yeah, the... the People who uh, did get published, but it didn't get sold that well, but they can trade off the fact that they're a published author. Mm. Um, and these people sell workshops and like host events and do talks, and I think make probably more money out of that than they do uh, from the actual sales of their books. Um, and there's a whole class of people who want to be writers for various reasons, some of whom are probably actually very good, uh, the vast majority of whom are probably not very good but all of whom are competing for the, the same shot of the title. I mean, there's a big argument that's made, it's always made, like, when, when if you ever complain about, like, some of these things, like, you know, writing courses or workshops or um, editing services being, like, incredibly expensive in a way that effectively locks out, um, you know, a lot of people, it's like, well, you know, we need to be paid, like, we need to pay people, we need to pay writers for their work, um, which is, like, yeah, fair enough. But it also, like, you've got to consider the material impacts of what that actually means. Like, it it, it basically means um, that, yeah, like, a lot of people just can't afford to go to these things. And it's kind of what you touched on before, Matt. Like, the real um, point of these workshops a lot of the time is not really to, like, learn how to write or whatever. It's to network and make contacts. And so it just becomes this insanely gate-kept world where only a very small segment of the population, i.e. people who have the money to pay for these things, can actually afford to make those contacts. And so that those are the people whose work gets published and then it just like it goes around and around. And like, I guess we should start wrapping up now, yeah. although I have oh, like so a much lot more to say. More to say. Oh, yeah, we yeah. could probably go a little bit longer. We've only just gone over an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. And like, um, I was trying, so I, um, I did a reading of uh, my novel, which is called Croatoan, at Avid Reader a while back. Um, and the it was like a they do these things like it'll be uh three aspiring authors will do like a block of short readings from their stuff before the main event um and the main event was this woman whose uh name i've forgotten now but i will just look it up really quickly uh, heather morris who has written a book uh with the deeply horrifying title uh the tattooist of auschwitz mm -hmm. which is about the holocaust um, and this woman is not Jewish, um, and it, she has written this book which purports to be a, a Holocaust memoir, um, and, like, supposedly is, like, creative nonfiction, and it became so wait, very... how can it be a memoir if it's not of, like, who's, whose memoir is it? So the story that she told um, is that she uh, got to know a guy in... Uh, Melbourne, who was an elderly Jewish man who had been in Auschwitz, um, and that uh, she like befriended this guy, and he like slowly grew to love her and trust her so much that uh, he wanted her to write this uh, like the story about his time in Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, and like, and so she was there, and she was like uh, there to promote a new book she had done, which was like a follow up to this Auschwitz book. Which had also like, uh, she like, which was the story of another like Holocaust survivor, which she was claiming as nonfiction, and it gradually became clear over the course of her presentation um, that this woman was lying. 
mm. about all of this. Like the the Day of the Mothers was clearly like I don't know what had actually happened, but that she was clearly just telling like a self-aggrandizing lie, and that like a lot of this research she'd claimed to have done was like all bullshit, mm. and that like she was just making a lot of stuff up and that she was like telling this whole story about how she was like this hero for and like i don't know she like like she finished off like she was telling stories and at the end she was like oh yeah i did a reading from my book at a prison and like after the reading all of these hardened prisoners came up to me crying their eyes out and like begged me for forgiveness (laughs) and were like i'll never do crimes again and i was sitting just like holy shit you're genuinely one like one of the craziest people i've ever met but everyone there but like, is like smiling politely do you think everyone yeah. else in the audience had the same conclusions as you like what was your read on that i guess you, there's no way I, to know yeah i don't like i i i'm hoping i don't think i would have been the only person um who was like there to call it out um and i had a couple of chats with a couple of people afterwards they were like oh yeah like that was a little suspicious but i think most of them there just completely were like wow what a brave story <laughs> yeah and there's a like and i mean i'm bringing that up partly because it just like it was deeply fucked and i think maybe gives you an insight this was a bestseller just to be clear like the tattooist of Auschwitz is on bestseller lists um this story like fabricated by a non-jewish woman about the holocaust like blatant yeah like just flagrantly exploiting it but like no one could say anything like she'd been invited to talk at avid reader she was giving these talks around the world people like seemed really impressed by her obviously false stories and like and really transparently like like a story that a child would tell so like it says i just googled it and there's a report in the guardian saying um that this place called the Auschwitz Memorial yeah. Research Center did a report laying out concerns that the book's claims of factual authenticity will lead readers to treat it as a source of knowledge and imagination about the reality of life at the camp, i.e. saying, like, she made this shit up. Yeah. The book contains yeah. numerous errors and in information inconsistent with the facts, as well as exaggerations, misinterpretations, and understatements. Yeah. Yeah, no, like... Um... Yeah, she hasn't has been condemned by, like, the, the Center for Auschwitz. Mm. Not good. There is that. Probably not if you, it's like, as a novelist or even just a person and the Centre for Auschwitz Memorial Research condemns yeah. you, you're like, going to take a, a little hard yeah. look at my choices here. <laughs> What's led to this moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. wow, that's insane. See, that reminds me so much of my own experience um, in academia uh, where, like, um, God, I don't know, still being in that world, I don't really want to go into specifics, but suddenly I've sat in, like, forums and presentations and, and conferences and listen to people presenting and just thought, but this is bullshit. You're making this up. This is just fraudulent. Like you're saying this very confidently and you're referencing very, you know, popular trendy theorists that we all know and love. And so, and everyone's like nodding along, but none of this actually has any material basis in reality. Like it's just something you're saying as though it was fact. I don't know. <laughs> like it's that sense of just being like, wait, what is happening here? And that kind of, um, I guess that brings me back to what I was saying right at the start of the show about feeling kind of gaslit by the entire literary world, like this flagrant uh, presentation of some, you know, saying this is X is Y when it is just so obviously not. Uh, and it's a very disconcerting feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've had that exact experience multiple times and couldn't agree more that it is like, it really is a, a grift. Like there's a very powerful 
Emperor's New Clothes element to it, but it's also really hard to figure out why people fall for it. And that's why I think, like, it does anger me, the whole, uh, like, the creative writing industry, the $100 workshops, and, like, the constant baiting of people, the constant pretense that, like, oh, if you just do enough courses, um, and if you just, like, network enough and meet the right people, like, that'll be your ticket out. Um, and I, I do think, yeah, like, the fact that it's, like, so much of the actual literary industry seems to operate this way, but also, like, the fact that it's immune to criticism, because the fact that people are, like, for a bunch of reasons that we've laid out, like, some of it, the fan fiction thing, some of it, people getting so invested in what they're writing that um, criticism really scares them, and, of course, some of it just that... Um, yeah, the uh, the woke aspect where it's like, well, if the book has good political ideas, you can't say it's a bad book. And especially, like, God help you if you're, a like, a white person criticizing a non-white author. Which I think is, like, to, just to touch on that last one again specifically, like, um, I think that's just very insulting to non-white authors, mm-hmm. like, to just be like, oh, you're precious little babies who can't possibly be criticized. Like, no, everyone here is an adult. Everyone here has presumably an interest in literature and writing and wants to engage with that world. And I don't know, I just think it's profoundly insulting to assume that anyone's work is above critique. Um, yeah. Anyway, but we should probably wrap up soonish. Yeah. I think our, the last thing on our plan for this show was um, to talk about what a good literary culture would actually look like. And um, the only thing I wrote down was that both our books would be bestsellers. So Absolutely. that's it. Like, Correct. Um, that's, yeah, that's the first thing. I think, I guess, uh, neither of us really have an answer to this question, but I think what I just said before is a, is a really big part of it. Um, doing away with this culture of um, everyone being above critique, um, particularly like, yeah, along racial and gender lines. I just think that's infantilizing. It does not want any favors in the long run. Um, so yeah, I want to see more like bad reviews of books. They're so much fun to read and cathartic. And even if I don't agree with them, I'm like, um, you know, I've, and I've read critical reviews of books I, I, where I don't agree with the reviewer's opinion, but it is like a, another portal, like a portal into what someone else thinks, which is like opens up another aspect of the text for me. So I really appreciate it. Like it's way better than reading just like, oh, this book was great. Everyone thinks it's great. I agree. It's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. We need like a much healthier critique culture we probably need people to understand that there is no separation between like like fiction is not outside reality it's not your safe space where you can go uh, it doesn't need to be protected books are things that exist in the world and they're of the world and they're created mm-hmm. by some uh, material process um and yeah like we i think we need to understand that uh people with shit ideas can write good books mm-hmm. <laughs> and that people with good ideas can write shit books. Um, some of my favorite authors are conservatives, and like they have very shit ideas that come through in their books. Um, and they say like shit things. I've been reading uh, Kingsley Amos. <laughs> uh, I read his book Lucky Jim, which is about how fucking horrifying academia was in the fifties. <laughs> um, and he's like a fucking horrible old sexist, but yeah. like he's still a really good writer. That sounds. I, I want to um, look that up. That sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it's, I actually yeah, you definitely should. Um, but I also think it's not just a matter of like what are the virtues that we should adopt. It's also saying, well, we need to look at how the publishing industry works. Um, 
and it is a number of big monopolies. Um, it is, I think, like it's very inaccessible. It's controlled by quite a small uh, amount of people. It's quite, it's like academia in that it's like uh, purportedly uh, liberal or like even leftist institution, but it's in fact, you know, a big capitalist monstrosity and like full of the vicious exploitation of labor. And the other thing I think, and that is difficult and interesting to think about, um, is how the internet in theory has completely almost made publishing houses obsolete in a way that nobody seems to have noticed. So the way I read books is I have um, an e-reader. I have a Kindle. Um, although I wouldn't get the Amazon one if I was buying a new one, uh, and I uh, download books online, uh, perhaps uh, not always paying for them. Yeah, like websites I, um, such as be hyphen okay dot um, mm. org, or can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One yeah. of those, which, which uh, they're terrible. They let you just download books for free, and you don't have to pay for them. Yeah, and don't I just don't can't use believe them. That's anybody a... would consider doing that. because yeah. it would, and it like, you know, I would say hypothetically, like that would completely transform the way that you uh, approach literature because you can just read anything for free whenever you want within like literally a minute of thinking about it and you know that seems you know i'm yeah like like just yeah hypothetically that seems like it would be really transformative for literature um but also and like and also like put the publishing houses and their gatekeeping function out of business because in theory, anyone now can just put a book online in digital format and anyone who has an e-reader can download and read it. But I think, like, my question about that um, is, like, then you kind of end up with a fan fiction sort of situation, right, where yeah. you get a lot of crap. And, yeah. you know, this is obviously kind of hypocritical of me because I've just spent an hour and 20 minutes saying that most books that do get published are crap. But I don't want to read the slush pile, <laughs> like the, the big global slush pile of everyone's unpublished manuscripts. So I don't know. How do you see that working? Like the only thing I could think of was some sort of like audience rating system. So I don't know. Yeah. What, what do you reckon? It is a really interesting question. They, so Amazon actually does do this. Okay. Amazon like has a, um, a self-publishing arm where you can just put anything like on Amazon for free. And I like, and I have done this with my book. I haven't got it on Amazon because that was... There was some reason I didn't want to do it. I also just couldn't figure out how to do it. Like I've just, you know, I've got it on a, a self-publishing website for four dollars, um, and like no one's bought it, obviously, because I haven't publicized it. But it means that the, like that's what it actually means is that the new obstacle is attention, um, and we need. So I think that what we would need, in that case, in the world where most people were reading on e-readers. Um, which has its own problems, like you can't take them on the beach because they get sand in them and all that stuff. But um, yeah, like we would need people who were like curators and like whose actual job it was just to recommend you new things mm. and to like sort through. Keep in mind how many, how much easier it is to write a book, and how many more books there are, like than even like TV shows. Like you can watch at least a little bit of every TV show or like the ones you're interested in, but like, you, yeah. Um, yeah, like you would need, I don't know, websites that had like a rating system and you would like still need editors and like books still need editors. So you still need someone else to do that. And you would need a whole system that just doesn't exist yet. Basically you would like, and like, I don't know, 
how that would come into being. I think that something like that in the longer term, I think at the moment people haven't actually realized how completely this, like the internet could transform books and the yeah. existence of e-readers and all this stuff. Absolutely. I think like, um, I have my own yeah, thoughts on know. e-readers and I do um, also use mine in much of the same way that you described, but with physical books, I find it, I do prefer a physical book in the, in the final analysis. And I think one of the reasons is that I find myself going back to my physical books and just like paging through them or reading little chunks or reading them again, which I don't really do with the, with the digital copies. Um, however, that's like a minor point. Um, yeah, like I, I don't know, I'm interested to see how publishing does change because it's also like, yeah, a highly, mostly highly unprofitable industry that's also been fucked by COVID. Um, and yeah, at some point you would think there would be some sort of technical shift, um, whether that, yeah, like results in, in it being easier for good stuff to get out there or just easier for a lot a lot of stuff to get out there is kind of remains to be seen. Um, but yeah, should we, oh, well, should we leave it there and also promote our own stuff at the end of this yeah, that's a good idea. hour and a half of bitching? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as I mentioned before, I have written a novel manuscript. It is not available for you to read anywhere unless you would like to DM me and request to read it. Um, <laughs> I just got a manuscript assessment, which was, um, very complimentary actually. So I was pleased with that. If you're a literary agent listening to this, get in touch. Um, I would like to send it to you. Uh, what's it called? Uh, it's called the historians. Um, cool. and it's yeah, literary fiction of, of the sort of genre that I described at the top of the show, the genre that I like to read and write. Um, Matt, what about you? Yeah, so I have a few. Um, I have my novel, uh, Croatoan, which is a conspiracy thriller um, of a kind of Twin Peaks event, um, or like the X-Files. And you can uh, you can buy that online um, on Lulu. Um, you can also, I would say if you want to see my writing, uh, you can go to my uh, Medium, which is circusarmy.medium.com. And that has a, a preview of the novel and a link to buy it. And it has some of my short stories. Um, I've just pulled up a new short story, which is called The Catch, which is the short story I was just describing about. Um, it's about Brexit. It's about sea goths. Nice. A very uh, big trend of 2021. Also, yeah, the big trend of 2021. <laughs> which goths. I now realize um, is a handy bit of uh, cross-promotion. <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. Um, the Croatoan also has sea goth elements. Um, but yeah, it's a, a short horror story in a little town in Cornwall. Um, read it to find out what the shocking twist is. And there's a few more of my short stories uh, on that website. And I also, I didn't go into, I also have a, a blog where I put like uh, Dungeons and Dragons stuff, which is this whole other thing that would take too long to explain all of what that is now, but it does have more of my writing on it. And that's... Uh, Remember dismove at blogspot.com. All right, we'll link to all those things, I reckon. In the show yeah, yeah, cool. You can find it's all on my Twitter bio. Yeah. I've got to like have an actual website that like yes. puts this all in one place, oh, like a fucking professional adult, but yeah. I have not done that. Yeah. yeah, I stopped writing. I was writing mostly nonfiction and then I kind of stopped writing that because I was writing a novel and now I just yeah. feel like I have no profile anymore. Um, but yeah, yeah well, whatever. I do a podcast well, with we have roughly this. 100 we listeners. Have this, so. <laughs> we have this spent splendid podcast. Exactly. But yeah, yeah. I would just say like, um, you know, I'm on Twitter at Circus Army. And then you can also go to Circus Army on Medium and find a lot of my writing. So just do that. Okay, cool. 
All right, let's wrap it up there. Um, Absolutely. Thanks for listening as always, and we'll be back in the next two weeks-ish with a, a new show on a topic Hopefully. that will be disclosed to you shortly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bye. All right. Bye.